Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 4, please? Luke chapter 4. We um, had a little bit of a detour last week, but that's okay because for the first few weeks of January, we've been having some messages called plans and detours because there's one thing that we're good at, it's making plans. And if there's one thing, as we just prayed, the world and this life we live is good at, it's derailing those plans. So tonight we're going to look at a day in the life of Jesus. Jesus had a mission. Jesus made plans. And Jesus, even Jesus, was presented with detours, with plans that unravel. And so what might we learn from him? A day in the life of Jesus. Now, my first Beatles CD... This is very important before we get to Luke chapter 4. Was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Now I had seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And y'all know the huge parade scene. What does he sing at Ferris Bueller? Twist and shout. When you're 10 years old, you want twist and shout. But I guess that record was not at Blockbuster Music or wherever you bought CDs uh, 20 years ago. But Sergeant Pepper's was. So my 10-year-old self got the far-out Sergeant Pepper. And it looked pretty cool. And it sounded pretty cool and also pretty weird. And one of the songs that really gripped me was Day in the Life, which is the last track of Sergeant Pepper's. And it's one of those songs where John would write and sing most of it, but he would kind of have it unfinished. So then Paul would come in and add some really disjointed, separate piece of music in the thing. But both of them took to writing about the day in the life of common, everyday people. And so John, he uh, looked at the headlines and he wrote this spacey song about some headlines he saw in the paper. It's that one that goes, I read the news again, oh boy. You remember? I'm not going to sing anymore. That's all you get. And it's over this big sweeping orchestra they bring in to Abbey Road. And it gets to these like huge crescendos. And then Paul comes in and it's like, because Paul's the happy one. He's the sweet one. He's the one that little Emma is already in love with. And I don't know how I feel about that, except really proud. But Paul comes in and he's like, woke up, got out of bed, <laughs> dragged a comb across my head. I didn't think I was going to sing both of these, but it ha it's happening. And it's about the life of these superstars with a super orchestra about really ordinary things. The daily life of a Londoner on his way to work. The daily life as captured in the headlines of the newspaper. And I think that they tapped into something that was really a part of our culture. And that is that we are obsessed with the daily lives of others. Not just in a Beatles song, but hello, have you ever seen reality television? Have you ever seen the Instagram accounts of people who you have no idea why they're famous, but they are, and everybody's fascinated? What, is it, what are they doing today, you know? We're fascinated by the daily lives of people, but I wonder, have we ever stopped and thought about what did a day in the life of Jesus look like? We're not so fascinated by our days. It's just a day to us. We get up, we do this, but have you ever wondered that Jesus who woke up, who ate breakfast, who traveled, who talked with other people, who worshipped, who had meals with his family, who celebrated holidays, who experienced sadness, who experienced pain, who experienced anger, who experienced all the things we experience in our daily life. 
But sometimes if we don't pause and think about this living, breathing, perfect representation of who God is, but also a humble representation of all that man could be. What did a day in the life of Jesus look like? Well, we have the Gospels, and they give us really good highlights. That's the greatest hits of Jesus' life and ministry. But I think Luke gives us a really interesting snapshot in this passage we're going to look at this evening, beginning in verse 38. We see actually a 24-hour period that's a day in the life of Jesus. We see a daytime in which he's working, he's teaching in a synagogue, Jesus was a great teacher, yes? He was more than a great teacher, though, because he also worked by healing and exercising demons. He healed sick people, he exercised demons, and we see him in Luke chapter 4 at a day in the office in the synagogue teaching and healing and exercising. That was Jesus' job description. We see the day, which we could say is his work life. Then we're going to see an evening. If you want to skip the scripture, we'll come back to that. I kind of got this lined out for everybody. Then we're going to see the end of the workday. He punches the clock. He goes into his buddy Simon's house. Simon, who we know as Peter, had his mother-in-law who was really sick. So he punches the clock and he goes to a house and you see him in a relational setting. He was probably going to have a meal but after he punched out, he needed to actually do some more work, and we're going to see him heal another person. But we see him share a meal and relate to others. Because after he heals Simon's mother-in-law, after the day ends, the evening comes, and so does everybody else who needs healing also. So Luke gives us a snapshot of the evening, and then finally... He says at daybreak, that following morning, we get a snapshot in a day in the life of Jesus in what we can call his spiritual life. But the difference is this. For Jesus, the spiritual life is not something he just compartmentalized and did from 6 a.m. to 6.30 a.m. No, for Jesus, we're going to see, I hope, that for him, everything is spiritual. All of life is spiritual. And by that I mean it was propelled by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That's a day in the life of Jesus that we're going to look at. But also we need to understand how everything was spiritual, propelled by the Spirit of God. And that is from Jesus' understanding of His mission, which before we get into, you need to look at verses 18 to 19. Jesus, what is your job? What is your work? What is your life? He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What did Jesus do in his day-to-day -day life? Yes, he ate. Yes, he traveled. Yes, he spent time with people. But it was all against the power and context of proclaiming and demonstrating God's reign to people. Everything fell into this world. It's all spiritual. It's all saturated in the power and presence of God. And when you're saturated in the power and presence of God, what does that mean? It's going to propel you to love people. Let's see Jesus, his day in the life. Let's start in his work day, his, uh, his daily life. Let's begin in verse 38. 
Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. I just mentioned that he had been teaching all day in a synagogue. Y'all know what a synagogue is? It's kind of like our local church. It's Think of it like there is the big temple where they had big festivals and big sacrifices. The synagogue was kind of like the franchise outpost of the big old temple. And so there was these smaller outposts. And this one is in Capernaum, which is Jesus' home base. So he was at this synagogue quite a bit. And what you do at the synagogue is you would hear from the scripture. Somebody would teach from scripture and you would worship the Lord. So he's at the synagogue. When do you go to the synagogue? When would the Jewish person go to the synagogue? Sabbath. When is the Sabbath? Saturday. Hey, look at us. It's Saturday at five o'clock. Hey, well, we're not Jewish, so I guess it doesn't quite matter, but Sabbath was Saturday, and Sabbath, of course, was a day of rest and not a day of work. You need to remember this, okay? Jesus left the synagogue, his home base in Capernaum. He had been teaching all day. By the way, somebody started heckling him during his teaching. Turns out it was a dude with a demon. So Jesus wasn't only teaching, he had to rebuke this demon and handle an exorcism. Jesus has had a long day. He punches the clock and goes to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law, so Simon was married, and this is his mother-in-law that probably lived in the house with him, was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. Now, high fever really doesn't do it justice. Today, Knox has a high fever, but high fevers then and now are very, very scary. Regardless of age, they can even be fatal, especially in the case of Simon's mother-in-law. She was gripped with a high fever. So what did they do? They asked Jesus to help her. Now, take a step back and pretend you don't know much about Jesus of Nazareth. Pretend we're just eavesdropping on a day in his life, and you can imagine how you feel after eight hours on the clock, everybody looking to you, everybody needing something to you. Can you just take one step away objectively and ask yourself, how would you feel if you walk into this expecting a kind of pot roast after church at Simon's mother-in-law's house, and you need to be present, and you need to help? How would you feel? You see, emergencies are never convenient, are they? How many of you have been to the emergency room in the middle of the night? How many of you are sick on Sunday and Saturday when your doctor's not there? Yes? Emergencies are never convenient. But emergencies will come. Jesus or you don't get to decide when and how the stuff of life comes. What we can decide is how we respond to that. I think so much of Robert and Chris Harlow or the paramedics that are connected to our church. They're the type of guys that go to the firehouse and they're resting, they're eating, they're hanging out. But at a moment's notice, they're the ones who have to pop up to be present to others. They cannot back out. They're the ones that have to lean in. And I think that whether or not we're a paramedic, I think we can learn from Jesus that says, when the stuff of life happens, because it does. If you can have yourself in such a place where you are present to God, it will lead you to be present to others. Everything that Jesus was about was propelled by the power of the Spirit. And so when the emergency comes, you're going to see him, regardless of the day that's passed, you're going to see him, look what Luke says, bending over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. 
I imagine Jesus, I asked you how you would respond. Here's how I imagine Jesus respond. With such great compassion and attention and care, he didn't send a text and go back to doing whatever he was. He was present and with her and bent over her. Lord Jesus, would you bend over Knox in this moment and rebuke that fever? That's how I've been praying this afternoon. Because he is present. He is compassionate. He rebuked the fever. Remember that word rebuked. That's the same one that Luke used when he silenced the demon and rebuked him in the synagogue. He's going to use that word rebuke again when he silences a demon here in a moment. And it's the same power and authority even though we're talking fevers and demons. Jesus has power and authority to actually not just have compassion, but do something about it. He leans in. He's present even after a long day. So she gets up at once and begins to wait on them. This little tidbit, it's basically to say two things. Hey, guess what? She did, he did way better than Advil, y'all. She was fully recovered, and I think she was full of gratitude. She was fully recovered and full of gratitude. This is no mere teacher. Something is going on here. How might we work with Jesus each day? How do we see this rhythm of work and rest in which he's going to withdraw to a solitary place? How might we take Jesus to work with us? Just a few observations I see in this day of the day in the life of Jesus. Jesus took detours in stride. I do not take detours in stride. Lord, please don't give us a snow day where our power goes out in North Texas because I hate those days. Amy loves them. She says it's a, it's a hall pass for all of North Texas. Nobody has to go do anything. Nobody has to go and try to fight traffic. If you don't, like everybody, just go home, take a nap, and watch a movie. I hate those days because I'm sitting there thinking, well, do we got to cancel this, and I got to do this, and then we got to reschedule this, and I don't want to, I want to drive, but I, I hate them. I hate detours. Jesus, I think, takes detours in stride. I think Jesus moves seamlessly from one place to another, and I think that that is something that I would long for, and I look to him, and I wonder how much of it has to do, watch, not just because he worked a lot, but because, as we're going to see in a moment, no matter how busy he gets, he withdraws to solitary places to recharge. I wonder if I don't take detours in stride when I'm at work. It ain't just because I'm on a Snickers commercial and I'm hangry and tired. I wonder how much of it is because I've been disconnected from the power source that propels me into relationships with others. I wonder if I'm spinning all my wheels and working. Yes, I'm going to be short with people. No, I'm not going to handle detours. But we see Jesus not only moved seamlessly from one thing to the next, fully present. He cared deeply. And Jesus worked hard. He was off the clock, but for him, his mission was what propelled him. His spirit propelled him to be with others. Y'all heard of take your daughter to work day. What would it look like Sunday, Monday, whenever you go to work? What would it look like to take Jesus to work day? Because do you relate to other people in your work, in your school, in your family life? Yes. What would it look like to take Jesus to work with you? What can we learn from the day in his life? I love what Dallas Willard says. Dallas Willard is a brilliant philosophical mind. 
And uh, he had the ability to just simply take these great, far-reaching truths about the kingdom of God and following Jesus and put it into something that you can remember and actually make sense. He said this, following Jesus means to choose to do what Jesus would do if he were in your shoes. He's also said that to be a disciple of Jesus, to be an apprentice to Jesus, y'all know it, is what? To be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. I think of Brother Lawrence also. He was a, a, a monk from several hundred years ago and wrote a little book I commend to you and have before, Practicing the Presence of Christ. Well, man, I'm not a pastor like you. I don't have time, you know, and I, I've got, I'm just as busy. You're probably busier because you probably only work one hour a week on Saturday anyway. Um, you, know, I, you know, I'm busy, man. Brother Lawrence was a monk, yes. He had a lot of time to be with Jesus. But you know what he also did most of his time? Clean dishes all day, every day. Plant in a garden all day, every day. Go and serve the poor and fix this or that around the monastery. But he made it his life's goal to take Jesus with him to work and to choose to do what Jesus would do. And he practiced his presence. And as he was elbow deep in uh, soap and water and pots and pans, he said, Jesus, you're with me. And that is enough. And he tried to train himself to walk with Jesus, to be with Jesus, no matter what he was up to. So the Sabbath ends. That's Jesus' day at work. It's over. Luke tells us at sunset. You see verse 40? At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness. Sabbath was a day of no work, and Sabbath ended at sundown. Okay? Sabbath began Friday evening at sundown and went all the way to sundown Saturday. So this is really crucial because the people who brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses were only able to after the Sabbath had ended because it is work to take people who could not walk. It's work to lead blind people who could not see. It's work to take the elderly who are gripped like Simon's mother-in-law with a high fever. It's work, and they brought to Jesus all their sick. When Jesus had finished a meal, having healed Simon's mother-in-law, having taught all day, and all of a sudden, doom, 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 there's a mob of people in need. What does Jesus do in this evening? Laying his hands on each one, he healed them. How do we take the sick and needy to Jesus? Think about a day in your life. Think about this. How do you abide in Jesus? Not just for yourself, but for others. Bud and I have made it a practice. We have seven missional communities. There are seven days in the week. We have names of all our people, and we try to pray for our missional community a day. If you are involved in a missional community, how are you abiding for those people? How are you abiding for your family? How are you carrying them in your heads and hearts to Jesus? I love the benediction that Robin and Kathy and Sid, all you a new community folk would do, and we've done it in this service several times, um, where you hold hands and you line up around the, um, the worship space, and you hold hands and you say, look around this circle, look to your right, look to your left. These are the people that God has brought together. 
And as you remember, as the Holy Spirit brings these faces and names to your mind this week, would you have the presence enough to stop and pray for them, to bless them? Would you have the presence enough when you're scrolling through Facebook to actually pray? Would you have the presence enough to see your community and your world turned upside down when you're keeping these people on your lips and on your hearts? When you're even praying for those who've offended you and your enemies and you begin to hold them in that sacred space in your heart before the Lord Jesus who can actually transform their hearts when you can't. So why are you going to go complain and be frustrated and talk to everybody else about him except Jesus? Would you hold those people in your heads and your hearts and begin to see Jesus dismantle that tension, dismantle that bitterness, and even, God willing, begin to turn their hearts and yours back toward one another? How are we abiding for others? Jesus had every reason to say, y'all, I just finished eating. I am worn out. No thank you. See you later. No, laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, Demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them. There's that word again. And would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. You see, Jesus do this a lot of times. And it's really puzzling, isn't it? Because wouldn't you want to get that business card that says, I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah, nice to meet you, you know? No, he silenced them because that title, with all this mob of people around, invited all kinds of expectations that Jesus would have to undo. Because Messiah means anointed one, king. And you know in this church, that meant for these people, let's not just bring our sick, let's bring our shields and swords, let's make him king, and let's go to war against Rome. This happened in John chapter 6. When he feeds the 5,000, they bum-rushed him and said, this guy's going to be our king. Wouldn't you want a king who would feed you at the drop of a hat? Yes. But Jesus eludes them. Jesus eludes these demons who are confessing that he's the Messiah. That's right doctrine. But Jesus rebukes them. Just like he rebuked the fever, it's the same power, the same authority, and Jesus has a mission, and he doesn't want to have to dismantle all the wrong expectations about who he is because he is there to proclaim and demonstrate God's reign. And how do you do that? You displace the reign of Satan. Now, I think it's really important to note here this. Even though they use that same word rebuke, healing and exorcism are two different sides of the coin. Now, some of us may look back on the Gospels like many biblical scholars do and say, isn't that cute? They see a little child with epilepsy and they call it a demon. Isn't that sweet? I mean, I'm making kind of a joke of it, but they say these people don't understand that these sicknesses are not uh, are sicknesses and they're not demonization. I think he makes this distinction between healing and exercising demons because they are different things. And I think that you cannot look at every sickness and say then, well, she got a demon. Satan is provoking this person. I don't think you can ever go back and say that demon uh, or sickness equals demon. Fever equals demon. And I don't think that you can sit there and say that mental illness equals demon all the time. I think what you can say is this. If you trace that thread back 
all the way back to the beginning. And if you need to lay mental illness, sickness, the, the way of the world, natural disasters, I think you trace that thread all the way back and you find that it's laid at the feet of Satan, not God. Because Satan is always about corrupting God's good creation. Satan is always about sending and this world into chaos, and as a result, we get things that send our communities into chaos like tornadoes a few weeks back. I think God is grieved by this. I think it's a product of sin in large, but we can't sit here and just say, well, there's no such thing as demons, it's just sickness, nor can we say on the other extreme, well, all sickness just equals demons. Are you with me? Is that enough of a disclaimer? Let's keep going, because I think what we need to see here is Jesus who is compassionate when he responds to others and even more need. Jesus, listen, never runs out of what you need. He never runs out of what you need. Now, you may get something at a time when you need it, but he will never run out of what you need. It may be up to him to decide when that comes, but it's always when you need it. Jesus responds with compassion. Let's see how he responds to others in this slide here. He responded with attention to each one of these people. And Luke doesn't say this, but I guarantee you that Jesus didn't complain. Because I think Jesus is broken for a world that's wrecked by sickness and evil. That was Jesus' evening. I imagine as the last person has hands laid on them and is healed, he goes back into the house, he falls down, collapses, and I think he sleeps hard. But here's what Luke tells us in this day in the life of Jesus, verse 42. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. Remember earlier I said that everything Jesus did was in the power of the Spirit. And that power of the Spirit propels him into life with others. It propels him, it re-energizes him, it charges him, and everything for him then is spiritual. What he did in the previous 12 hours was not work. That's my this life, that's my family life. No, for him it was an extension of what he did at daybreak probably every single morning. And that is get away, take a deep breath, and be in the presence of his Abba, his Papa, his Father. And he was able to recharge in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's the only way he is able then to move from that rest and into work. I told you that the Sabbath ends, remember, at sundown. The day begins, the new day, the Sunday begins... Actually, not at daybreak like we would say today. It ain't 6 a.m. that you say, oh, today is Sunday the 20, uh, what is tomorrow's date? 17th, goodness. No, for them it began at daybreak. And isn't it powerful to know that their days began with rest? That when they lay their head down at Sunday after the Sabbath, even though Jesus was healing, let's say he didn't have a crowd of people out there, he goes to sleep when the new day begins. And while we rest, God is present, alert, awake in the night. And he is already setting in motion work. And he is already sustaining what we will wake up to. 
So Jesus gets up at daybreak and he joins what God is up to. And he lays before him his day and says, there's going to be more people, God. Father, I need you. I am tapped out. He had every excuse to sleep in and not go to the gym that day, yes? But he gets up and he rests. Mark tells us he went out to a solitary place to pray. He rests. I think one comment that needs making, something we talked about in our missional community on Wednesday. Do you know that there's a difference between healthy rest and unhealthy disengagement? I think we've talked about it. Maybe we talked about it last Saturday. I think of it in terms of naps. I'm a napper, okay? And I'm not ashamed to admit it, okay? But I have mastered the power nap. I do not disrobe and get in PJs and in my bed and turn off all the lights. No, I keep shoes on and I hop up on the couch and I'm in and out in 20 minutes. Don't even need an alarm. I perfected this in college because of 8 a.m. classes and an 8:40 class or uh, and a 10:40 class. I only had a little space. Okay, I'm the power napper. My wife, on the other hand, she's in childcare. God forgive me, Amy, forgive me. She, if she's gonna take a nap, she's taking a nap. She is like PJs. The like, make sure that Nora's unconscious for like four hours because she's in it. She wants to sleep, and that's okay. But when I do that, I'm done. It doesn't, it drains me. Healthy rest is the kind of rest, regardless of how much time, okay? Regardless of how much time. Think of it, when you are resting, are you really resting if you look up from your phone and say, where the heck did the last hour and a half go? That is unhealthy disengagement. That will no more propel you into life with God and others than just being unconscious asleep in a nap. There is a healthy rest. And it's a rest that you can go and be with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to then go out and be like Jesus. It's a time when you take a step back and you let all the voices in your head that are saying you're not good enough, you can't do this on your own, this will never work. This is a hopeless situation. Would you get up at daybreak or at day's end, get to a solitary place? How often have I said this, church, and make time to let Jesus get a word in edgewise? Yesterday was Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. Monday is Dr. Martin Luther King Day. And I read this week uh, in his autobiography, um, he's one of my heroes, and I read this passage I had not seen before. And he had just about got the very last death threat he could stand. And he writes that it was when Coretta was asleep, and he had just reached, as he said, the point of saturation where he was just done he could not sleep. He gets out of bed. He goes to the kitchen. He puts on a pot of coffee. He's sitting at the kitchen table, and he just spills it out in front of the Lord. He says, I am weak. I am done. I cannot do this. He's fantasizing about what it would look like for him to step away from this movement and then let somebody else come up and do it because he was certain that life was going to persist without his wife, without one of his kids, and he was done. And he said, all my fears came and just saturated me. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said all this. He spilled his guts in the middle of the night. 
And he said, I've heard thunder. I've seen lightning. I've heard sin breakers crashing against my soul, threatening to destroy me. He said, but I heard the voice of Jesus. And I heard him say, be strong, Martin Luther. I have you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And Jesus got that one sentence, and he said, it was almost as if immediately his fears completely dissipated. And he walked with confidence out into a world that was set to destroy him and persecute him. And he changed the world in the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God because he laid it all out in the middle of the night. Jesus goes to solitary places often in Luke. I think he did it every day because all the voices were coming against him saying, be this, be that, don't do this, don't do that. But he heard ringing in his ears what? The voice of his Abba. Before Jesus did anything at his baptism, Father says, you are my son, my beloved With you, I'm well pleased. I want to free you from even now thinking Adam is preaching, be and do more. You're busy, but go and be alone. Quit it. I'm saying, would you hear the invitation of a beloved? And would you go and be with him? And let him silence all that mess that you're giving all day's attention to in your head. And would you fall in love with Jesus again? You will never find the time. You will never just find it. You must make this time. And I don't care when it is. The when is not as important as the what. I'm not a morning person. I've not seen daybreak in a long time. Yes? But regardless of how I feel, Regardless of what I've got going on, God help me, God drag me, I need to be with Jesus. And maybe it's five minutes one day, maybe it's an hour another day, maybe it's all day, we're walking right there together. But I don't want to know what my life is like without Him. I know what it's looked like when I take vacations from Jesus. I find myself being short with others. I find myself just doing bare minimum in my life and work. I find myself not living that full life that Jesus has invited you to. Have you ever wondered why not every single person who comes to Jesus immediately becomes saint whoever? It's because we've got to partner with him. We say, Jesus, all my life is yours. And he says, great, now come follow me every day for all your life. And my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if it's hard and heavy, you're not doing it with me. Would you do it with me? Our church will never be the church that's meant to be if we're still just continuing to settle for bare minimum in our life with Jesus. Stop. Don't listen to me and think, well, tomorrow I've just got to get up and do this. You know what makes for a terrible marriage? A marriage that is only a marriage because you signed a piece of paper and you're waking up next to this person again. Oh, great. There's Adam. No. It's an ongoing relationship of intimacy and it's one that Jesus 
went for every morning, regardless of how busy he was. And he went through his day praying and being with others, totally present. I've talked for longer than I've wanted to. I don't want to lose the importance of what comes next, but we do need to kind of work through this quickly. Jesus is alone, and when you make your best laid plans to go and be with Jesus, that's when emergencies happen. That's when people need you. It's the same is true for Jesus. Look what he says. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. Well, it wasn't that solitary, Jesus. They found you. I just imagine everybody that had heard the news from the night before, they're like, oh, I've got a sick aunt. Come on, aunt, let's go. Let's do this. I imagine probably double or triple the crowd that went on this, like, Frankenstein mob to go get Jesus and force him to be who they want him to be and do what they want him to do. So this is where, if you've read this whole story, you see Jesus move straight from teaching, in the middle of teaching, boom, rebuke a demon. Then move straight from the synagogue to Simon's mother-in-law, boom, rebuke the fever. Yes, let's eat. Oh, doom, doom, doom. Oh, 45 people? Yeah, great. Boom, lay my hands. I'm going to heal you. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. I'm here. I'm your personal Jesus. Let's do this thing. Now you're going to expect, okay, here comes Jesus again. He's going to stretch out and do this. No. He said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. That's his mission. That's what Luke told us when he quoted Isaiah in verses 18 and 19. I must proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God to other towns also. Because that is why I was sent. Jesus was sent. Jesus had work to do. And he is still sending. So Jesus, what does he do? Verse 44. He goes. He's not going to set up shop and just be a nice little healer in Capernaum. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. He takes it on the road and he goes to announce and demonstrate that Satan's reign of terror is over. God is, God's reign is breaking in and all the wrong people are invited. That is news that needs to be announced here, there, and everywhere. So Jesus was sent and he sends us too. The next section in Luke is uh, when he calls his disciples. We already were introduced to Simon. There may have been some familiarity, but he says, hey, guess what? You're going to be fishers of men because I need help on this thing too. So we need to be a church that is responding to needs. You need to be people who's responding to needs, but you also need to be people, look, let me free you from something else too. Sometimes not every problem is yours to fix. Not every person is your project Actually, no person is your project. You cannot be the Holy Spirit for that person. What you can do is bring them before God. Plead on their behalf if they're not pleading. And you can hold them in your heart and you can carry them to Jesus, but you cannot be the Holy Spirit for these people. And sometimes their emergency is not your emergency. Sometimes it is. But I think what we see as I summarize this talk tonight, Jesus has a rhythm of work and rest. And Jesus did everything he could while he was there. And then I think what happened in that solitary place moment where he went was he was able to discern the difference between what I need to do 
and where I need to be. I think he was able to discern right now, it's not, it's not where I'm at today. I'm being called elsewhere. You need to have the freedom to do that. But you also need to have the freedom to be there when you need to be. But will you step away, be present to God in order to discern which is which? Yes? We cannot be the Holy Spirit for everyone. Sometimes he's going to send us elsewhere. And it may be hard and those people may not understand. But Jesus was working for something much bigger and much deeper. So not every detour has to be taken. But Jesus modeled for us, I think, perfectly a life of work and rest where he was present to what God was up to and that propelled him to be present to others. And I pray that for our church. Let us pray and then let us come to Jesus in the bread and the wine. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus, the word become flesh. He wasn't an instruction manual to tell us what to do. He was a shepherd and a king and a lover who showed us how to live. Lord, thank you for the fact that you're still with us to the end of the age. You still love us to the end of the age. You still want to walk with us. So may you increase in our hearts a desire to get up and walk with you. For those of us in our church who aren't ready to walk, I pray that they would hear your first invitation, the invitation we looked at last week, to come to you and find rest. And I pray when they are good and ready and you call them, that only then they would get up and come follow you. But may we hear those invitations every day and make space to be with you. For your love is steadfast even when we are not. Please bless us and keep us. In the name of Jesus, amen. May you find Jesus waiting to greet you in the morning as the day rises to meet the sun. May you see Jesus in, in your coming and going with you and in the faces of those who meet you along the way. May you rest in Jesus as the evening comes and in the peace lie down knowing that he will never leave you nor forget you. Listen, be still and know that I am God. May your spirit guide us to seek your loving presence more and more in every hour. For it is there we find our rest from this busy world. Go in peace.